thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Bible study on the book of uh, Exodus. Um, here's a follow-up to some of the discussion we've had over uh, possible reflections or meditations that help overcome many of our vices. This is a beautiful meditation called the 15 Prayers, or Les 15 Horizons in French. This is in English, actually. The booklet, booklet is in English. You can find it on the web. You can Google the 15 Prayers of St. Bridget. And it is a meditation on the suffering of Jesus. Uh, there are very beautiful promises attached to this uh, prayer. Although I do like to point out that these promises were not approved by the Vatican. Because even though these prayers were attributed to St. Bridget, we've never found her in her writing. So there's some doubt about it. However, the promises are still published with this booklet because of God's mercy. That if you were to pray these prayers with a purity of heart and asking for the promises given here, why wouldn't Jesus give them to you? That's the idea. And you ought, to, you ought to pray this every day for a year. And it is uh, 15, Hail, um, 15 Our Father, 15 Hail Mary, and you read the meditation and goes with them. And if you're married, I do recommend that a husband and wife, you might want to consider praying this. And if you're single, do consider the, the, these beautiful prayers. Uh, they're very, very powerful in keeping the focus on the um, suffering, uh, suffering of the Lord. Thank you. So you can find them on the web again, the 15 prayers of St. Bridget. Um, do a, you know, Google them and you'll be able to find them. Uh, another thing I'd like to point out to you is that uh, in, the, uh, so in the Maronite uh, liturgy, we are now, we've entered now what we call the season of the glorious birth. Um, and it started this past Sunday. And it will run all the way till Christmas. Um, Advent is at the door of the Latin rite. I think in the Chaldean church it will be very similar. Anyone knows what the season uh, you're in in the Chaldean church right now? Okay, memo to all those who are Chaldean, find out. Okay? Uh, so for those of you who um, are cognizant of the fact that we're pre- preparing towards Christmas, I would suggest and strongly recommend, actually, that you fast. Uh, not give up sweets and do these cute little things. Actually, do fast the way you would fast during Lent. Um, so for those of you in the Maronite uh, rite, I would recommend, if health permits, no water and no food from midnight till noon every day, Monday through Saturday, except, except always on Sunday where you're not supposed to fast. Don't fast on Sunday, ever. Okay, but Monday through Saturday, 
midnight to noon, no water, no coffee, no food, no coffee, no coffee. <laughs> Got it? Uh, that is a way to prepare because unless you make, make room in your heart for the Lord, when he comes to visit you, it's so full of stuff, he simply can't come in. It's one thing to open the door to him, but it's another thing to make sure there's a space for him. So that's how you make space for the baby Jesus to come into your heart. You take all that stuff out. So think about it, consider it as a preparation towards, uh, towards Christmas. All right. Now, we continue our study, and we are considering today chapters 13 through 15. There's some overlap in the study. You will see we're not necessarily, it's not kind of dry. Last week we've done some 12 and 13, and today we take up again some of the uh, motif we find in chapter 13, and we run through chapter 15. I'm hoping that you're following the schedule that I had published initially, that you're reading these chapters before you come to the Bible study. If you do not have this uh, schedule, or if you do not have, you're not on a mailing list, please talk to Lilian and Everybody's receiving the emails that Liliana is sending out? If you're not, please talk to her. Get yourself on that email. She's spoon-feeding you the readings. So please read them um, so that you are aware of what the study is about. Otherwise, it'll be a lot harder for you to follow up what we're talking about today. So chapters 13 through 15, there are five themes we want, I would like to cover tonight. Um, we'll see if we can get to the fifth. But essentially, we're going to talk about the departure of the uh, uh, Israelites from Egypt, departing in great wealth. We're going to talk about the crossing of the Red Sea, the Mara incident, where they stop at um, a specific spot and they don't have water, and it's called Mara, the Song of Moses, the song of uh, praise and glory given to God after they crossed over safely. And if we still have time, I'd like to visit again the theme of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the context of the dedication of the firstborn. We'll see if we can get there. So, to repeat, departure in great wealth, um, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Mara incident, the Song of Moses, and if we have time, firstborn in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, before we, well actually, as part of this business of departure, a little chronological note. Uh, which, we, which is taken really from chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. So the time of Israel's sojourn in Egypt is calculated to the very day to be 430 years. That's the time given. Uh, Genesis 15, 13 gave the time in round number 400 years. Uh, there are Oftentimes in scripture you'll have a round number and you have a specific number. So, for instance, how many years did the, Egypt, did the Israelites spend in the desert? How many years did they wander? That's the round number, 40. The actual number is 38. It was 38 years. Right? And uh, uh, there is a very interesting study done on the Gospel of St. John where Jesus meets this... Uh, um, this uh, sick person who's uh, obviously have some sort of a handicap at the pool of Siloe. Remember that particular case? This man is trying to get to the pool when the angel descends in the water, but every time he gets there, somebody's there before him. And when, when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? He says, I've been here for 38 years. 
right? And many of the fathers comment on the 38 as, a, as this man representing Israel in the desert, right? Wandering in the desert and then getting to the crossing the water and he wants to get into the pool, right? St. John is very, very um, keen observer. Actually, all, all, the, all the Gospels, very keen observers. And this is what we call intertextual echo. In one text, there's an echo of another. It's not called out explicitly, but it is there. Um, I'm putting this out to you specifically to tell you how much we miss of the sense of Scripture because we're not seeped in it, right? And we, we need to, it's an uphill battle for all of us because we've lost this biblical culture, right? We lost the biblical culture, therefore it's really hard for us to pinpoint and understand all these themes as they appear in the Gospel or in the letters. Be it as it may, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, the time from Exodus to the building of the Temple of Solomon was calculated to be 480 years. So from the time they actually uh, entered the, whole, the, the Promised Land to the time the Temple was built, 480 years went by. And, uh, and if we use that figure as a broad chronological boundary, then if the date of the building in the Temple was 960 B.C., you add to that 480 years prior to building it, yeah? So remember, B.C., as you move back, you add years, right? So you add 480 to the 960, and you arrive at 1440 B.C. And if we add to that the 430 years they had spent in Egypt, you then compute the Jacob's entry into Egypt to be about 1870 B.C. Just to give you some chronological indication of all these events, from 1870 all the way to the birth of our Lord, um, they went into the Promised Land. It took them 480 years to subdue it, the coming of David and the building of the Temple. And then that was about 960 B.C. And then in, eight, in 867, the northern kingdom of Israel disappears. It lasted there for about 200 years and was swallowed up by the Assyrians. And in about 587, right, from 960-580, about 400 years, the southern kingdom of Judea disappears, being swallowed by the Babylonians. So the whole operation of establishing the kingdom of David lasted for about 500 years, and then it was gone. Right? All the way till 1948 A.D. All right? Only in 1948, 19, yeah, 1948 A.D. did the Israelites get back autonomy and political independence. So just to keep that in mind as, a, as an overall chronology. Now, departing with wealth. The author of Scripture is very careful to point out that God is fulfilling His promise. Because in Genesis 15, 14... He told Abraham, they shall come out with great wealth. And now, here, he recapitulates that promise and shows that they did come out in great wealth. In fact, the, the reason why the Egyptians gave their treasures to the Israelites is a mystery. There's a quite a bit of controversy around that particular theme. And, um, and the reason is quite complex. I don't have... I'm not going to get into it today. I'll see if I can cover it next week. I have too much material to cover here. But 
if you are really interested in one explanation that is logical, that it makes sense, I would again recommend to you one book I have recommended on numerous occasions, and it's written by um, René Girard, uh, René, R-E-N-E, and uh, Girard, who is, uh, he was a, a professor of, uh, um, well, of literature at Stanford of uh, French origin, and the book is named Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And in it, he gives the most cogent explanation of why the Egyptians would have given wealth, given treasures to those whom they would have considered as their enemy. Um, but it is quite a mystery, uh, otherwise, why they've done it. And I'll see if I can come back to it next, uh, next, uh, next week. Now, they departed in great wealth. Which route did they follow? How did they go about it? The Israelites were living in, in, a, in a city called Ramses which is an ancient city in the Delta region of Egypt. This was in the area of Goshen, allotted to them by the Egyptians in the days of Joseph, as we've read in Genesis 47, verse 11. Now, you have two ways to go to the Promised Land. One which is direct, following the coast, and the other one, indirect, going southeast and crossing back into the desert. And that's the route they picked, the second, not the first. I'll come back to that in a minute. The, the key thing about that route is that, um, well, before I get there, first of all, many of the names they quoted in Scripture to, de- to describe their traveling are unknown to us. We don't know their exact location. However, we know quite a bit about their overall travel and the topography and the geography of the area to know that at the, the route that they followed is an established trade route through the area connecting Egypt with the regions to the east. The key thing about it is that it was an area that had very little water. As you cross this area, you would not find many sources of water. And then the question becomes, how would... So they, they had two choices. Either they would go through an area that was dry and dusty, or they'd go through precipitous mountain ranges. Very steep mountain ranges. And obviously, if you're going with stocks and, and, and uh, kids and older folks, you're not going to go up and down mountains. You're going to go through dry flatland. question is, how did they find the water necessary to survive? So imagine, if you will, crossing the desert here in California on foot for many, many, many days. And you do not have the means to carry large quantities of water. And there are, you're, you're a big number. How do you survive? Do you understand? Now, one estimate, and I'll come back to that in a minute, about the size of the Israelite leaving Egypt puts it at about 2 million. Okay? There's questions about that. I'll come back to it. It's not easy to, re- to resolve, by the way. If you have a large number, I mean, two million, this is essentially um, San Diego proper. Try and get all of San Diego proper through the desert. How do you do that? Imagine the logistics, the organization, the, the, all that you have to think about, the sick, the elderly, and you're going through a region where there's very little water. Unlike the coast, by the way. Why did the Lord lead them through that way? 
Well, one reason given in Scripture is because the other, the more common way, was the way of the Philistines and was very well guarded. And they were not yet, re- yet ready for war. Essentially, the Lord surmised that if he were to lead them through that route, seeing the Philistines, they'd go back to Egypt. The reason why they would go back to Egypt isn't simply because they were cowards or because they were not set to, to, to war. It is simply because their hearts were in Egypt. 400 years is a long time. And it's a pretty good area that they got. All right? It's lush. You can get your cattle fed. And it's an easy life. You get it? So your heart is still... It's one thing to leave a place. It's another thing to actually make the new place your own house. So, you know, those of you who come from another country, you can think about your own parents. They may be physically living here, right? But essentially, the way they live their lives is that they live outside their country, not in this country, right? They don't integrate. They don't assimilate. They don't accept that this is now their new... They will never call it their new house. And if you were to give them... I don't know, you offer them an apple or an orange, they'll yell at you telling you this is not an apple or an orange. Back home, the apple was, you know, three pounds and the orange were, you know. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. That's the sort of thing that's happening. This attachment was preponderant among them. You will see it over and over again, coming up over and over. So why is the Lord taking them the hard route? Because He needs to teach them about what? Discipline, yes, but before discipline. Trust. Trust Him. So, what does that mean practically when He says, trust me? Pardon? Have faith. But practically speaking, what does that mean? How does faith manifest itself practically? Okay, leave everything. But on a day-to-day basis, what does it mean? He provides. He provides. What is the implication, therefore, when we say He provides? Before we get to the don't worry, let's, let's understand that very, very carefully. If I'm making a million dollar a year, and somebody says, God provides, what do I say? Amen. Right? It's easy. Of course He is. Right? I'm, I'm talking about somebody who's a believer. Right? I'm not going through, I'm not looking at those who do not believe at all. This is a different story. But for a believer, He provides. Of course He does. Right? Easy. Yes? But if I'm unemployed and somebody says he provides, now the metal of my faith begins to manifest itself. Yeah? Remember, he did, what did he do in Egypt? He performed signs and wonders. The purposes we saw were twofold. One, to show the Egyptians who he is. And two, to show the Israelites who he is. Now that they've seen that, what should they do? Trust him. If they trust him, practically speaking, it means what exactly? It means that they should not have all the means necessary to do what they want to do. Because if they did, where's the trust? Yeah? Do you understand? Okay. That's how he works with us. 
That's how he works with us. He is not going to give us all that we want because he loves us. If he gave us all that we wanted, we would hate him because our heart will be out of control. There's a beautiful story about St. Bernard of Clairvaux. I would recommend to read his biography, The Family That Overtook God. Beautiful biography of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. If you don't know who he is, he's a doctor of the church, and many of you have memorized his prayer, his prayer, rightly called the Memorare. Hmm? Remember? Oh, most gracious, that's St. Bernard for you. He is the author of this prayer. Uh, St. Bernard had four brothers and one sister. He's obviously a saint and the doctor of the church. His four brothers are blessed. His sister is blessed. His father is blessed. His mother is blessed. That is why the title of the biography is The Family That Overtook God. Everybody in the family is blessed thanks to him. So I do recommend reading his biography. One thing about him is that his brother, who was also a monk with him, was the master, the, 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 the keeper of the purse. And they were dirt poor. The monastery was poor. And he would come and see his brother and say, what, what is it today? And he says, we need, let's say, 35 pieces of silver to do such and such. And he would tell his brother, don't you worry about it, and I'll go worry God about it. And he would pray to God, and invariably somebody would knock at their door and give them the exact amount they needed. The exact amount they needed. One thing you need to know about the order of Mother Teresa. Let's say you decide you want to help the nuns. So you go the first day and you give them 100 bucks. Then you come back a second day and give them 100 bucks. You show up a third day and give them 100 bucks. The fourth day you come to give them 100 bucks, they'll send you away. They will not accept it. She did not want her sisters to rely on income that was assured. So that reliance would be always on the providence of God. And she is the only female founder of an order that had seen her order to grow beyond a thousand nuns. Okay? And Mother Teresa was in San Francisco looking for a property, San Francisco, in the heydays. And she just walked around, following, and then she, she looked at the place, and that's the place she wanted. And then she said, this is it. That's the, that's the pro- this is our property. And, and, and I think a real estate agent was with her and said, Mother, this is very expensive. She said, oh, no, it's not. And she took a, a miraculous medal, and she threw it over the fence. That was the property she got. That's the lesson God is teaching the Israelites. That's the lesson God wants to teach us, provided we let him. And by we let him means take your worst fear. Take a situation that scares you. Take a, um, some things that you're facing which, you really, which, 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 which makes you really afraid. And know that God is right there. That's what he's waiting for you. Right there. That's what they had to face. And I'll show it to you in a minute. That's exactly the situation they had to face. So that's why they had to go through this route. So as the biblical narrative makes it abundantly clear, they could not have survived without the miraculous provisions of water, food, and clothing. What is water? What is water a symbol of? 
Yeah, yeah, life, but yes, and grace. Grace, right? What did Jesus tell the woman, the Samaritan woman? I'll give you flowing water, everlasting water. Water is a symbol of grace. The food is a symbol of what? Give them who is therefore the, the faithful servant who will give my people their food in the right time. Jesus was speaking about Peter. And the food therefore is the Eucharist. Food is the symbol of the Eucharist. Water is grace. The food is the Eucharist. Hmm? And then uh, clothing always represents virtue. So you receive the graces, you're nourished, you, get, you have the graces, so you can be clothed in virtue. So therefore you are able to work on your vices and grow in virtue. And without God you cannot do these essential things, and if you don't do these essential things you cannot go to heaven. Hence, you are also on the same journey that the Israelites are on. You are leaving Egypt. Egypt is the world that attracts you. And if you want to know if you're attached to the world or not, I'll put before you this very simple test. And you don't have to answer me. You only have to answer your conscience. If I were to tell you that next Sunday, there'll be a pile of $10 million right here, and it's first come, first serve. Yeah. If that's making you react, you know you live in Egypt. You understand? If it's making you react, and it should. I mean, let's not be hypocrites here, all right? We are fighting with the old man. You live in Egypt. Think always of St. Faustina when the Lord appeared to her and said, and offered her to create a whole universe for her. Not just the planet, the whole universe. Galaxies and all. A whole new brand, brand just for her. Not 10 million bucks, a whole universe. It's in the conversation that she has with him. It's part of her. Sister, my daughter, would you like me to create a whole new universe for you? That was the question. She only had to say yes and we'll be done. And her answer was, Lord, what would I do with the whole universe when I have you? What would I do with 10 million bucks if I have you? You understand? This is the faith of the centurion. See? No, no, no. You don't have to come to see me. I'm, 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 I command men, if I tell them to do something, they'll do it. All you have to, to say is do it and it'll be done. I don't need more than that. Where's your faith? That's the lesson of the Exodus. Where's your faith? It seems like an impossible mission. Without the Lord, it is impossible. But with the Lord, everything is possible. Now, they took with them mixed multitudes. We, we see them in, in chapter 12, verse 38. And it's almost like an aside. The author notes that the great multitude, the great many non-Israelites went out with them. So one observation is that these, uh, this multitude is presumably proselytes, meaning Egyptians who, or non-Egyptians who essentially converted, wanted to uh, um, worship God the same way because of the miracles that was, were performed. However, there is a second explanation that says... They're not really proselytes. They're going with them because they were impressed by the miracles that Moses performed. All right? Impressed by the miracles that Moses performed. And here's the rub. Being impressed by a miracle does not mean we have faith. Being impressed by a miracle does not mean we have faith. In fact, you could almost see it this way. Anybody who yearns for extraordinary events have 
is, is, is sort of at the beginning of the journey of faith. So when you start, you tend, you wish, you want to escape the ordinary and see something extraordinary. But as you grow in your faith, you tend to understand that the most extraordinary thing is hidden in the ordinary life. And you start to appreciate those very little things that are actually not little at all. They are huge. Hmm? So, the point though that is being made here is, is something that the Lord made echo of when He gave this uh, parable of the kingdom of God. What He said, the kingdom of God is like a field. The Son of Man came and planted the wheat, and the enemy came and planted the chaff. And the wheat and the chaff grows. And the point that he was trying to make is that if you look at the wheat and the chaff as they're growing and they're green, you cannot tell them apart. They look exactly the same. You can tell them apart only when the wheat produces grain, fruit, and the chaff doesn't. And he told his apostles, don't try to separate the wheat from the chaff. At the end of the ages... I will send my angels, and they will do so. He was trying to remind them, he wasn't saying anything new, because God has been doing it across the ages, that don't expect perfection in the church. And don't be scandalized by the sin you will see in the church. It is going to constantly be a battleground all the way through history, until the very end of time. We saw it because Adam and Eve had Cain with them. Then Noah had Ham. Then Abraham had Ishmael. And Isaac had Esau. And Abraham had Lot. At every moment in the history of the church, there are those who follow the calling of God and those who who do not expect that. Be realistic about the travails that happen within the church. Not all who are in the church here will make it to heaven. In fact, um, it is a very great blessing if all of your children keep the faith. It is not a guarantee. Don't take it for granted that your children will keep the faith. It is a true blessing of God when that happens. So do not take it as a given, especially if you're not living by the covenant. If you don't live by the covenant, you can be guaranteed, you can be assured to have rebellious children who will not listen to you, who will not respect you, who will not love the church, and who will not love God, but will stray away. Because God will show you in your own flesh how you, by your behavior, pain Him. How your rebellion feels in His heart. He will show that to you, He will teach you with your own children. But if you do obey the covenant, and if you don't take it for granted, and if you, understanding the the, uh, the battle at hand makes sacrifices and offers your suffering for your children. I'm talking most especially to the fathers. If you take your fatherly role at hand 
and you take it seriously and you be the guide in your family and you entrust your children to Our Lady and you pray to God that they will keep the faith, then God in His mercy, though you may be a sinner, will heed your prayer. But do not take it for granted. Don't assume, I put my kids in school and I just do the basics at home and they'll go to heaven. You put your kids in school, you do your basics at home, and most likely your kids will go to hell. I'm sorry for being blunt, but I don't know how else to communicate this message to you because we live in a culture of ease. Everything is easy. Most, and, and most of all, heaven is easy. And I've told you that many, many times. It's easy to go to heaven. Harvard is hard. You take that for seriously. Going to university, you know, that's a very serious thing. But heaven, of course everybody goes to heaven. What's the big deal? Can't do that. So don't be scandalized if you see this in the church. Expect it. This is how it's going to be. Don't be scandalized if there are divisions in families. Expect it. This is how it's going to be. Jesus warned us about this. This should not be a source of scandal for you. This should be a source of inspiration to pray even more and offer your sacrifices. Yes? So what was their number? As I said, one of the number given... Sort of uh, the number that is counted in the census later, we'll see that is 603,550. These are only the men. 603,550 men counted in the census. If you now count women and children, you're about 2 million. Maybe 2.5. That's a very large number. Now, there are many. So, so, so just to give you an idea, if you're going to go through nine, so sort of the nine generation studying was 70 who came into Egypt. So first generation, let's say, is Jacob and is 12. Second generation, there's 70 in Egypt. And you sort of try to see what the multiplier is. To get to that number, we're talking about three or four children per family, per generation. Right? If you were to go with three... It's about 450,000. If you go to four, it's 4.5 million. Right? So it's somewhere in between. 3.2, 3.3 children per generation, which seems reasonable. This is not a huge number. So on the one hand, that number over a period of 400 years, living in peace and prosperity in the middle of a land that supports them, with cattle and everything around, does not seem improbable. You need to account for the fact that probably life expectancy was shorter, disease, uh, stillbirths, um, uh, the, the number of uh, um, infant death was probably high, but at the same time, you might think that the number of births was also high. So it is not completely, um, I mean, it's, it's not impossible. However, there are scholars who suggest that this number is simply fabulous, has no historical value. Uh, because they say the author was uh, using an unrestrained, um, he had unrestrained use of hyperbole. He wanted to essentially say there were many, many of them, so he came up with this huge number. Um, this is kind of debatable. However, one scholar in particular, um, G.A. Rensberg, compares the Canaanite story from Ugarit in which Cret goes in search of his abducted wife, 
accompanied by 3 million men or um, 300 myriads, right? So he says this is obviously hyperbole, and hence the author in Scripture is also using hyperbole. Uh, kind of dubious. A second suggestion is that the number have historical value but reflect a later census made during David's reign. Why would somebody use a later census made in David's reign and project it back in the past is unclear to me. Uh, particularly because we do not have other cases in Scripture where this is happening. A third suggestion that seems uh, more interesting and more serious is the, um, the Hebrew word elep, whose normal translation is thousand, but however, it could also be translated as a family, not a thousand, or as a clan, or as a tribe. So there are many verses in support of this. For instance, in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 15, my clan, Elip, is the weakest in Manasseh. Number 116, the ones chosen, the leaders, the heads of the clans, Elip, of Israel. 1 Samuel 10, 19, and 1 Samuel 10, 21, and then others like Joshua 22, 14, 1 Samuel 23, 23, Isaiah 60, 22, and Zechariah 9, 7. 9, 7. So, this word has been often used not to indicate a thousand, but a family or a clan. According to this, therefore, the, if you were to use that as a counting mechanism, Judah does not have a number, chapter 1, verse 27, 74,000 men. Instead, Judah has 5,000, um, rather, it, it, Judah has a total of 74 families and 600 people. So you drop the number from 74,600 to 74 families and 600 people. Now, think about that for a second. 400 years went by. 74 families? 400 years? How do you explain that? Maybe, possibly, not all Israelites went up. But Scripture is silent about that. There is no indication that a sizable majority of them stayed down in Egypt. Okay? So although I can understand the analysis, it has also issues. So, let me just tell you that if you were to follow this approach, then the number of men 20 years of older in the wilderness is reduced from 603,550 to 5,550. Much, a much more manageable group, smaller. Um, so, one, one uh, scholar pr puts it this way. If the purpose of the Exodus account is to demonstrate the power of God in defeating the Egyptian army... Greatly exaggerating the number of Israelites is hardly consistent with that purpose. So to give you an idea, if you consider the military records from ancient Near East, if Ramses II is the pharaoh of the Exodus, a possibility, but just a possibility, and you consider the battle of Kadesh that opposed Ramses to the Syrians, then in that battle, each of them, actually not the Syrians, the Hittite, so in, in, in Syria... Ramses II met the Hittite king Mutawallis and each fielded approximately 20,000 troops. 20,000 was the size of their armies and these were the titans of their time. Why is it an issue? Because Pharaoh pursued them with how many chariots when he went after them? 600. All right, let's assume there are three, 10 guys per chariot, which is hardly possible. But let's assume that's the case. How many men? 6,000. If you had 6,000 men on chariots facing men 20 years and over 
who number 605,000. 6,000? 605,000. Who should be afraid? Yeah. Why were the Israelites greatly afraid when they saw them coming? Do you see the problem? So, there is definite incongruity, and it's really not easy to resolve. Why? Because. So, I gave you the arguments in favor of reducing the number. Here are the arguments in favor of not reducing it. First, a sufficiently large number of Israelites must be assumed to make sense of Pharaoh's words. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. If the, if the Israelites had 6,000 men, why would Pharaoh say they're too mighty for us? Why would he suddenly notice them? It's a small group. That's problem number one. Problem number two, we'll see that later. You know how much metal was donated to build the tabernacle? In weight? Six and a half tons of metal were melted, mostly gold, to build the tabernacle. Six and a half tons of jewelry and whatnot. How do you, how do you get that if you have 5,000 men and their families who left Egypt in haste? You need a large population to be able to extract such massive amount of precious metal to be able to account for the tabernacle. So therefore, reducing the number is also problematic. So what's the answer? Well, I don't know. There is really no clarity on either way. Either way, we have um, challenges with this text. So it's going to be... Um, a matter that would require further study and, and hopefully archaeology might help in that case. All right, how did they travel? The shortest route to the land of Canaan was the well-guarded way of the Philistines. I told, you, I told you about they didn't go this way because they were not ready for the battle and they would come back to Egypt. All right. On the second day of the journey out of Egypt, they essentially traveled from Ramesses to Sukkoth and the, that would be the 16th of Abib. And then um, we don't really know where they were, but they were at the edge of the desert, which put it nearby to the present Suez Canal. So that's probably where they, uh, they, they went and how they crossed over. All right. Why is that important? I'll get to that one because we're going to talk about the crossing. How did God protect them as they traveled? Well, there was a, there was a pillar by day, Pillar of fire by day, pillar, um, no, I'm sorry. Pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Cloud and fire, both are symbols of what? The Holy Spirit. Hmm? The Holy Spirit. So when we read in St. Paul that we are in the cloud, we are in the cloud, neither on earth nor in heaven, he doesn't mean some big, fluffy, white cloud like Peter Pan. He doesn't mean we're going to be... Um, what is this thing they talk about? Uh, you are, um, the Protestants talk about that thing when you lift it up. Yeah, raptured. Yeah. We're not going to be raptured. That's not what he has in mind. He has in mind the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have in mind an actual physical cloud. He has in mind the coming of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was on the mount, it was transfigured. What were they covered in? A cloud. That's the Holy Spirit. So, 
That's what the symbol is. And fire is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We know that from Pentecost. The, fi- the Holy Spirit came down as tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit is the advocate, the consoler, the one who guides us, the one who leads us. Right? And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. So there's Trinitarian symbolism all through the text that show the three person of the Blessed Trinity at work throughout the entire process. That's why it is a cloud of uh, um, it's a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right? The Holy Spirit is guiding them and leading them. And um, after building the tabernacle, the cloud and the fire rested on the tabernacle. You understand that? There's something extraordinary about the tabernacle. In the first, in the first temple, the one built by Solomon, when they brought the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah, El Sakinah, the presence, the Holy Spirit, rested on the tabernacle. And the first fire that was used to light up the altar of the temple was drawn from the Holy Fire, from the Holy Spirit of that tabernacle. Right? And then later on, Zechariah, who was the only priest prophet, will see with his own eyes the, the Shekinah leaving. Ikabod is the word in Hebrew. He saw it leaving the, tab- the, the temple before its destruction. And that Jesus will make allusion to this later on when he talked to the Pharisees about that. The temple was empty. The presence was gone. Right? The presence of, was gone. And that's why, by the way, with, within, while the Orthodox Church does not keep a tabernacle, they do not keep the hosts, in conformity of the command given by God, leave nothing to the following day. Right? They cannot, however, chide us because we do. And the reason is because of the tabernacle that had the manna. The tabernacle held the manna. And because of this, it makes sense to have a tabernacle and to keep the holy host in a tabernacle and not consume it all in one day. Yeah? Okay. So crossing the Red Sea, how did they cross the sea? First of all, we don't really know the location where they crossed. Um, Red Sea is also, can be read as Reed Sea. However, it shouldn't be um, assumed that because Scripture says it's a sea of reeds, that it was shallow. And the reason is because later on we read that Solomon had its own navy essentially parked on a port of the Sea of Reeds. Well, obviously, that sea had to be deep enough to carry the ships. Hence, you can't necessarily say it must have been a small lake or a pond or something like that. And believe me, there are attempts to reduce this to a small lake or a pond. Okay? Um, now, when the Israelites saw the Egyptians, their immediate response was what? How did they respond back to Moses when they saw the Egyptians coming? No, they say, aren't there enough graves in Egypt that you have to take us out in the wilderness? We told you it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and serve the Egyptians. Why are they saying that? Because they like to serve the Egyptians. Yeah? They like it. It's built in. It's part of who they became. Just as... We like living in a place where there is really nice weather. 
Who would want to go live in Alabama, for goodness sake, if you live here? Right? So they're grumbling at the slightest occasion. Why? Because they're not happy. That's not where their heart is. But notice, God doesn't smite them on the slightest occasion. He is patient with them. He knows they're not yet able to lift their hearts to such a level where their faith shines. They just cannot do that. But he's patient with them. And Moses reminds them, no, stay where you are and put your faith in God and see what he's going to do. Now, that's a pretty tall order because you see these chairs coming at you and you're standing right there and you're thinking, I'm dead. And then Moses stretches his hand and the sea is parted and the pillar moves in front of them to protect them from the Egyptians. But God demanded first that they, their faith be exercised. And even though they grumbled in the beginning, they listened to Moses. They listened to Moses. They listened to Moses. So, um, it is often important for us to always remind ourselves that God will speak to us and tell us strange things. And I've told you many times, be careful when you ask God to give you a vision or a dream or revelation or speak to you directly. It may not be exactly what you think it is. And it's not going to be clear It's necessarily. It's not going to be easy to understand. And it's not going to be something that will you know, tell you how to win the lotto. It's not going to be any of those things. He's asking them to stand there and see what he's going to do. It's an act of faith. And only when they actually demonstrated that faith did they tell Moses, did he say to Moses, stretch out your head and do all these things. That was the outcome of their faith. Uh, Our Lady in Fatima told the little three, the three little girls, that there is one month where they were not able to go to the Kova because the police apprehended them and kept them in jail. And Our Lady told them that had they been there that day, the final miracle would have been greater. So oftentimes, God's activity is dependent on our faith and the depth of our faith. Oftentimes, it is the case that he will structure or he will tailor what he's going to do to meet our faith. The faith of the community. Yeah? So, particularly, I'm speaking to the Chaldean community. If your community is governed more by fear than by faith, then don't expect miracles in in Iraq. But if your community understands and sees herself as a miracle that God brought you here in a land of safety and he has great plans for your church and he's going to do that through you and if you take his words seriously and heed them and live a life of holiness and stay away from all immorality then in your lifetime you will see a miracle in your church that you could not have ever imagined but that depends on you that depends on you If you live in fear more than you live in faith, you're going to reap what you sow. But if you understand what is happening here in your church in San Diego is absolutely amazing, and you act on it accordingly, you will see something that will gladden your heart. That's how he always does. There's no mystery about it. He told us in his books, it's not hidden in stars. I'm not... Telling you, I'm not being a prophet here. I'm just telling you straight out of the book. I'm applying the pattern. Now, 
going back to the number I told you about, if you had 600,000 men and a total of 2.5 million people, then when God parted the sea, the road that he had parted or the open for them must have been wide by several miles for that kind of population to cross in one night. Several miles wide. Not, you know, 12 feet or something like that. Several miles wide. Now, talking about the Red Sea, give you a little statistics about it. It's 1,200 miles in length, excluding the gulfs on Aqaba and Suez at the north. Its width varies from 124 to 155 miles. Um, its average depth is a bit more than 1,600 feet. The minimum depth is 600 feet. And the maximum depth is 7,700 feet. And in addition, the name Sea of Reeds or Rushes presupposes fresh water, not salt water, but that's a different story. So it's a big sea. So minimally, you're talking 100 miles that they had to cross. It's a long distance. You take 2.5 million people, 100 miles, 600 feet down, with cattle and kids and everything else. It's not a small operation. That's why the thought that maybe they've crossed through another body of water that was sufficiently large to drown the Pharaoh and his men might make sense. It doesn't take away from the fact that God parted the water, but the actual, when you play it out, we still don't understand how this happened physically. We, we really don't have a proper grasp on how this took place. Unless you reduce the number significantly, in which case you run into other issues. Okay? And the, the parting itself leaves many, many detail out. It doesn't tell the whole story. It just says, Moses lifted up his, his, his hand, the sea parted, and they crossed. Not how, what the logistics, what they had to do, how deep they had to go, how wide was the water, the, nothing. No details are given because the author is not interested in the mechanics. He's only interested in pointing out that God performed a great miracle, a great sign, so that he actually helped the Egyptians. Now, notice the dual use of the symbolism of water, right? Dual use. I just told you water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, right? But water, big, the sea, right, the salty water, has always been viewed in Scripture as a symbol of the Gentiles. The Gentile empire has always been looked at the sea, and Israel as the land. As the land. So in Revelation, for instance, the mighty angel who comes down has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, meaning he was claiming dominion over both. The beasts in the book of Revelation come out from the sea because of the four empires that will come and threaten Israel. Right? The four empires. The... Um, not the Hittite, the uh, hmm? before the Babylonians. Assyrian. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, thank you, the Greeks and the Romans, the worst of them all. Those are the four beasts that come out of the sea. They come out of the sea because it is the Gentile land. So note no, the dual use of the symbolism of water. Oftentimes, you will find that symbolism in Scripture cannot be bolted down. We can't say water is the symbol of the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit. It has multiple meaning. Likewise, a lion can be the symbol of Jesus, the Lion of Judah, and can be the symbol of the devil. Right? Watch for the, 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 the devil, your enemy, for he is like a lion prowling, seeking whom he may devour. The, the letter of St. Peter. 
um, and I have a whole, a whole uh, talk on symbolism in scripture, uh, if you're interested. But uh, I just wanted to point out, you have to have a loose hand when it comes to symbolism and look at it in the context in which it appears. All right. The, the third point I wanted to talk about is the Mara incident. What happened there? They crossed, they're on the other side, and they're walking now in a desert. It's a, it really helps you if you were to imagine you're living on the beach by San Diego in La Jolla or something like that for all your life. You grew up there, and now you find yourself in a desert. Okay? Egypt is destroyed. Egypt is destroyed. Pharaoh's forces are destroyed in the water, right? When they crossed, Pharaoh's men and Pharaoh's forces are destroyed. Right? Yes? Okay. What happened to Goshen? The, the area where they were living. What happened to it? Was it destroyed? No, it is intact. Egypt is slain. Egypt is weak. If you were living there, what would you think you ought to do? Well, yeah, opportunity is knocking at your door. Your enemy is down. Your enemy is weak. You, on the other hand, you still have your cattle. You're intact. Your land is intact. You can go there and do what? Expand your business. Help the Egyptians rebuild. Opportunity is knocking at your door to become supremely rich. And where are you? In a desert. In a desert. Do you understand the difficulty, the frustration they're going through? Look, you left everything intact. Your property, your houses, everything is intact. And the guys who are persecuting you are gone. Let me put you this way. A miracle happens in Iraq. There are no more Shia. They're broken. They're gone. The land is pretty much empty. All the areas of the Chaldean are intact, and opportunity is knocking at your door. There's oil. Hmm? You're with me so far? And God comes to you and says, uh, I want you to go in the desert here and wander about for about you know, a bunch of years. Then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. All of you will obviously jump for joy and say, Amen, Lord, I'll go right now. Right? Pardon? Yeah. With a God like this who needs enemies. I want you to understand their frustration because it's very easy for us to say, ah, those Israelites, God did all these things for him and look how they repay him. As if we would do any better. If you do not understand, if you don't feel the heat that led these people to murmur against, murmuring, by the way, doesn't mean they're whispering. Murmuring is a sign of rebellion. To murmur is to rebel, to reject. It's a very serious sin. Right? If you think they did it and we wouldn't, you've missed the context. You don't understand what they're going through, what's in their heads. Life is about to become really, really good now, way better than it was before. The opportunity is right before them. They only have to go back and seize it. And what is God telling them? Go in the desert and offer me sacrifice. While somebody else in Egypt is probably seizing on that opportunity. Yeah? If you, you sense now the heat that they're under. So they cross in the desert. 
And there is no water. And they're thirsty. And they get to a spot where there is bitter water. What does bitter water mean? What's behind bitter water? It's not water filled with jalapenos, all right? It's water that you cannot drink. It's poisonous. So, add in, um, insult to injury. God leads them in the desert and brings them before bitter water. So what do you think they do? Thanks be to God. We're alive. God will take care of everything, right? No. They grumble. Okay, at which point, God does something really strange that uh, Israelites today are unable to fully explain. He tells Moses, he points Moses to a tree, and he says, take that tree and throw it in the water. And it becomes sweet. God the trickster. What's, what's God up to? Why is he telling him, take the tree and throw it in the water? How, how would they trust him? Why, why a tree? Why not a pebble? I mean, come on, God, this is nature, right? Why uproot a poor tree and throw the whole thing in the water? Besides, how do you turn, you take a tree. It's full of stuff. You have a bowl of water, and it's, it's water that's poisonous. And you ask, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And he says, uh, go out and see this big branch. Cut a branch from that tree and put it in the water, and you can drink it. That's it. Without the cross, this makes no sense. But with the cross, it makes perfect sense. What is the other name of the cross? The tree. St. Paul says of Jesus that he was hanged from the tree. So it is the tree of life. God is teaching them about himself, about salvation. They take the tree, throw it in the water, and the water was poisonous, becomes sweet. What does that mean? It means that the, the water that we have today, which cannot lead to life, becomes life-giving sources of grace because of the cross. That's the incident that happened over there. The trust in the cross. The trust in the cross. And by the way, uh, oftentimes what's very interesting, if you really become biblically inclined, then when you see miracles performed by saints, you will see their echoes. Those miracles are echoes of signs in Scripture. So, for instance, um, one example I'll give you is that uh, miracle that St. Cherville performed a couple years ago in Lebanon, where he went to um, this woman whom he had healed before, uh, uh, Nohad, Nohad, right? Yeah. And uh, he, St. Cherville is very funky this way. I mean, his ways of healing people is not your typical saintly way. Um, he went out with her in the garden. She had an oak tree. And he took a... Uh, he took... Uh, no, no, the instrument that you actually water flowers with. And I, I think he may have even brought it with him. I don't, I'm not completely sure if he brought it or he took it. And he filled it with water, and he watered that tree. And then he told her, take leaves from that tree and give it to people who are sick and let them drink, let them boil and make tea out of it, and they will be healed. Now, if you, if you don't know this story here, right, it, it sounds like, you know, St. Sherville is just being show-off or being fanciful. He's not, right? It's scripturally based. Here is a tree that will take normal water and make it sweet, make it life-giving. And you, it requires an act of faith because usually you don't take leaves from an oak tree to make tea out of them. If you did that, it tastes Bitter. Interesting. 
It tastes bitter. It's not nice to drink tea made out of oak tree. You won't find that at your select tea store. Do you get it? So many of the miracles that the saints perform are typically rooted in Scripture. But you've got to have the eyes to see that and understand the echo again, the scriptural echo in the Acts of the Saints. All right. In there, he gives them instruction. That is the Torah. He begins the Torah right there. See, this is why we say the cross is the root of the law. Because right there, when he gives them that incident, he teaches them, gives them instruction, which is the Torah. And the rabbis will say that the Torah, part of the Torah was given right there. The law was given at Mara. And obviously, in our understanding, the law stems, flows from the cross. The cross is the root of everything. And he says, you ought to listen carefully to the voice of God. Listen to the voice of God. That is the fundamental lesson. His instruction will be sweet and will satisfy their thirst. Listen to the voice of God. His instruction is sweet and satisfy your thirst. You see, one uh, recommendation that I make to all is to take your Bible and go to a church where they have... um, um, when they have uh, the Blessed Sacrament exp- exposed. Here, for instance, you're blessed with the Our Lady of Grace right down the street, where they have 24-7 perpetual adoration, right? Up in Escondido, we have St. Mary's Church in Escondido, where there is also perpetual adoration. And um, in the Chaldean, right, now you do have a tabernacle, don't you? You preserve the species, right? I would recommend to you guys to go talk to your priest and start perpetual adoration. There's enough of you. Awesome. You do? Yeah, wonderful. No, 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 no. Perpetual. 24-7. Non-stop. Okay? Non-stop. 24-7. Work for that. And see the miracles will happen in your community if you were able to do that. 24-7. Non-stop. Perpetual adoration. That's what perpetual means. There's always somebody before the Lord praying. Okay? Be it as it may, you take your scripture, you go sit and you read. And scripture becomes substantial. It's like food. It feeds you. It quenches your thirst. It satisfies you. This is what God wants. It's not like any other book. Right? That's the instruction from Mara. All right. The last point I'm going to make, and I'm not going to get to the fifth, but I'm going to just kind of go over the fourth, the Song of Moses, which is in chapter 15, verse 1 through 21. So it's a hymn of praise sung by Moses and Israelites. Sung, first of all. Sung, right? So when we praise the Lord, we sing. So please... When you go to Mass, don't act like carps. No. You participate and you sing. Singing is not optional. Singing expresses your joy, your, your, um, um, your happiness, your thanksgiving, Eucharistos, thanksgiving, Eucharistos, to God. That's what singing is supposed to do. That's why... The liturgy asks us to sing, not to show who will win at some contest. It is there to express our thanksgiving to God. Right? And the Lord said, make a joyful noise. Because he knew most of us don't have voices to sing. It doesn't matter. Just sing. Participate in the liturgy because you're there to say thank you to God. So it requires an effort on your part. 
You're not there to stand waiting for Santa Claus to drop by and give you a bag of money. All right? You're there to say thank you. So say thank you. Imagine if somebody came who did something really good to your family, and you wanted to thank him. So you, see this, you go see this guy, you stand in front of him, and you stare at him for about five minutes. You say nothing, and then you leave. What a wonderful way to say thank you, isn't it? That's what you're doing to God when you stand in church. You don't sing. You don't, you don't utter a word. You just stand like a carp. By the way, carp is a fish. And we say mute as a carp. It's maybe a French expression. Maybe it's not an English one. I don't know where I got it from. But maybe it's French, right? Because mute is a fish in English. Carp. Yeah, okay, good. Good. All right. Fine. So it's a song. The words of Moses are obviously a thanksgiving song, but they're prophetic because they, are, they speak of the future, what is going to happen, particularly the establishment of Jerusalem on the holy mountain of the Lord. He's already in a, sing, in a song of praise, giving thanks for things that are going to happen in the future. Okay? And I reminded you already, when you ask something for the Lord, thank Him first before you ask. Start by thanking Him before you actually ask. Because that shows your faith. When you ask, ask with faith. Otherwise, don't bother. The poetic imagery that dominates the song is that the Lord is a mighty warrior. Not the Lord is a mighty Santa Claus. He's a mighty warrior. Images taken from war are used to describe the action of the Lord. And notice, this is a song that rejoices in the defeat of the enemy. That is why it is also appropriate to rejoice when the enemy of the church is defeated. Right? Not to hurl insult at them, but to rejoice in their defeat because it serves a purpose to reduce either their punishment or increase their, the, the mercy of God in them. Okay? God is depicted as the one who judges Israel. And throughout the poem, the picture of God's great deeds foreshadows that of David, who will defeat Edom, Philistia, and Canaan and make Mount Sion the eternal home for the Lord's sanctuary. And obviously, so it's a sign pointing to a sign that points to the reality. So the poem points to David. So it's a sign pointing to David. And David himself, in his person, is a sign that points to Jesus. Right? Oftentimes in Scripture you will see these sort of uh, telescoped signs. One sign pointing to another sign that points to the reality. It addresses God as Yahweh, the name given to God, the, the name that, re, that, that reveals God. Ten times the name of God is used. Completion, right? Ten is the number of completion. Ten times it is used in the song. It is an affirmation of God's lordship. God, the Lord of the universe. And the other really important thing that you find in this hymn is that to tamper with God's people is no small risk. Because of the covenant... When God extends a covenant to people, they become part of His family. And to mess with them is to mess with Him. And it will always carry risks. In Scripture, particularly in Isaiah, we see that God uses the... Um, um, he will use foreign forces to come and punish Israel for their sins. But then He will turn around and punish those who punished Israel even more so afterwards. Alright? So it should also give you great hope and comfort 
to know that if you are in covenant with God, no matter what the situation around you is like, God extends His protection to you. Protection does not mean that you're going to live a physical life of safety. That may be the case or may not be the case that we just witnessed in, in, in Iraq. Protection means that if you're faithful to Him, that He will always give you the wisdom to choose Him. He will protect you from despair. You will not renounce Him. You will have final perseverance to choose heaven when you die, no matter the circumstance. That's the protection we're talking about. It's a spiritual protection to make sure that at the moment of death, you are choosing Him. That's the protection that He extends to those whom, who loves Him. Because one way or the other, we're going to die. Right? So if His protection meant a long life, and He drops us at death, well, good luck with that. And if His protection meant a long, happy life without any problems then that's the worst protection we can ask for because then we don't need faith. Life is good, I need nothing. Right? We just saw that in the whole process of crossing the, the Red Sea and leaving Israel, and leaving Goshen before, uh, behind, I mean. All right. So, throughout this, this, this sequence of chapters, we've seen a number of things that God is teaching His people. Number one, material possession is not the end-all and be-all of your life. Do not measure your life by material possession. If you do so, you will be unhappy. If you measure your life by how much you possess or how much you do not possess, you will be unhappy. Number two, God is the one who leads us if we want to be led. However, His ways are not ours, which means He's going to lead you to places you did not expect and ask you to do things that might get you, out, get you out of your comfort zone. He will take you in following a path that demonstrates your faith because He wants to glorify you. You know the hymn, uh, and He will bear you up on eagle's wings, right? So the imagery that we have of this is somebody sitting on an eagle and flying up high, which is very comforting. Well, maybe comforting. I don't know. But anyhow, it looks really nice because you're way up there and flying on eagle's wings and he's doing all the work. Isaiah, who used this imagery, had a very different thing in mind. An eagle bears his little ones, the mother bears the little ones with her wings and take them way up, very, very high. When, it's, when she's very high, you know what she does? She drops them. That's bearing you on eagle's wings. Because what do you think the, the eagle chicks will have to do when they're dropped? Flap their wings very, very quickly. And she will wait to the very last moment before plunging down and catching them up. And once she caught them up, what does she do? She starts all over again. That's what bearing you on eagle's wings mean. God is not intent on being your babysitter and carrying you like a spoiled kid. He wants to teach you how to fly or walk on water. You understand? So he's going to get you to confront your, your, your fears, your pharaoh, your sea that you have to cross, the bitter water. All these are images of your own life. And he is intent on leading you as he led his people. And he gave you, he gave you 
a sure guide, a guide that is more excellent than Moses. And that is his church. With her teachings, with the Pope, with the, with the, with the clergy, to guide us. That's what they're there for. And when we obey the church and obey our priest and trust in God, He will lead us to the promised land, which is our final goal, heaven. Amen? We'll take a quick break and then we'll continue. We'll take, uh, um, uh, after the prayer, we'll take some questions. All right, questions. Uh, I don't know, because it's, if if there were 600,000 men, it means that the total population leaving is about 2 million so, 600,000. The point I was trying to make earlier was when they reduced the number down to about 5,560 men, it is still not such a large group. Why would Pharaoh consider them to be um, a threat to him? Um, so, it's really not clear how you play with those numbers and how, what, what, how you can make sense of them. Because, again, having such a large crowd crossing anything is a huge undertaking. It is really not simple. So, uh, to your point, it's really not clear which way you go. Uh, Yes, you had a question. Uh, Very good. The point I was trying to make is when we want the thing we want, which are not necessarily the thing leading us to eternal life. Most of the time when we start, the things we want are not the things we need. You, You see? When you are on your journey of faith and you set aside all the things of the world and you're focused on God, then more and more the things you want are the things you need. And then you're happy with what you receive. So my point was, if, if God were to take us when we begin and he gives us everything we want, and typically when we start, we want material things, then we end up hating him because at one point we become very impatient. You see? Very materialistic, very impatient, and we don't have time for him. That's what I was trying to say. But that's a good point you made. Yes. Yes. No, we do. We do. As you see, the, the, the question is, should we rejoice in the defeat of the enemy of God? And we do, because the hymn in Scripture is a hymn of rejoicing over the enemy being defeated. That's different. Teshmat, and I'm not uh, you know, an expert in Arabic, but Teshmat doesn't mean do not rejoice. It means do not... Um, uh, do not, yeah, do not gloat over your, your enemy. Do not uh, put them down, right? He, here, Moses is rejoicing in what God did. His, his focus, if you notice, if you go back and read it carefully, he's not uh, laying upon them things they did not do. He's not accusing them of things the Egyptians did not do. He's stating the truth. And he's rejoicing in what God did, delivering his people. Right? So, and, and rightfully so, we ought to rejoice when the church is liberated from an oppressor. It's a moment of rejoicing. Yeah? But no, but you love your enemy. Loving your enemy means w- w- uh, wishing them salvation. That's what loving your enemy means. It means you pray that they be saved. It doesn't mean you want to hug them. Yeah? Okay. Make sense? Very good question. Uh, excellent question. The question is why suddenly we see Miriam being interjected. You remember how I told you in Scripture, oftentimes you have these sort of uh, 
um, ads, what do you call them, the uh, advertisement, the uh, pop-up, right? That's one of them. She's going to show up again later. Yes, she's going to show up later, and we'll see her playing a role. So now, heads up, here's somebody you need to keep a tab on. That's what's happening. All right? No, 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 I'm sorry. When the Blessed Sacrament is exposed, it's always the same. Whether it's 24-hour, 24-7, or just during one day. You sit before the Blessed Sacrament, and it's the same effect. But all I'm trying to say is that if a parish were to actually get to the point where they have the Blessed Sacrament exposed 24-7, signs and wonders start to happen in that parish, and God transforms it by His holy presence. Right? Because there are people who are in adoration, in prayer before Him all the time. Yes, so that's... That's the difference. But not, if you will, the quality of reading, whether God is exposed one day or, or uh, perpetually. Yeah. No, there is not. Good question. Yeah. Yes. No, no, not at all. Good question. Is there any teaching about the rapture? In fact, the word rapture is not even in Scripture. There is no place in Scripture where we say, he's gonna, you know, we're going to get raptured. What St. Paul was referring to is the Mass. Right? Essentially, when the priest makes the invocation, he pronounces the words of consecration, then we are in the cloud. Because there's something called the epiclesis, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit during that time to make this a reality. You know, in the old Latin rite, we say, and Lord, we pray that your holy angels may take these offerings and to your heavenly altar and essentially bring back that. That going and coming happens in the cloud. So St. Paul is saying, when this happens, we're neither on earth, this is not an earthly reality, nor in heaven. We're not yet in heaven. We're in the cloud, in the Holy Spirit. That's what he means. Because his reference is all Hebraic, and uh, going back to the temple, the presence, and going back all the way to Moses. Because he actually says that the Israelites were baptized in Moses in the cloud. He sees it as a sign of baptism in Moses which is a sign of the Old Covenant. So his view is very liturgical, very much based on a temple reading of Scripture. Protestants today don't have a temple, don't have mass, don't have liturgy. They miss all of this, so they stray away with their interpretation and come up with a fanciful explanation of God sort of suspending us in air up there in the stratosphere while he's you know, playing cowboy down here, which is unfortunate. Yes, Absolutely. The Orthodox Mass is absolutely valid if they allow you to, if they allow you to celebrate with them. Not all Orthodox uh, bishops or priests will allow Catholics to receive communion in an Orthodox Mass. So you must always ask an Orthodox priest if you're near. By the way, you don't go to an Orthodox Mass if there is a Catholic Church around, right? It's only in case where there isn't, then you f- that's your fallback position, right? Uh, that's how it. It, and then likewise, Orthodox should go to the Orthodox Church, not to the Catholic one, on a common basis. That's what they should do. Yes. Uh, some will. If you were to go to ask a priest, some will not even allow you to participate. So it, it really depends from uh, 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 bishop to bishop. There is no consent. There is no one way of doing it among the Orthodox. Yes. Uh, well, the, 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 um, the tabernacle was, was uh, let's see... Uh, Zechariah or Isaiah? One of the two. I don't remember which, which one. Hid the tabernacle. He hid it before the destruction of the temple. And once the temple is destroyed, the, the tabernacle had no place. 
And then when Jesus came, the tabernacle, the old ancient tabernacle, makes no sense. Because think of it, the ancient tabernacle, however holy it was, and it was holy, was a sign saying, it was like a sign saying, um, you know, San Diego, 200 miles. That's what it said. Now, okay, you find the sign, and maybe there's a map on it, so you keep it. And when you get to San Diego, what do you do with it? You got there. You have the real thing. If you, if you say, forget San Diego, I have the sign, you, you look strange. Get it? So that's why it has no purpose. That's why the temple, the, the, the temple of Jerusalem, will never be rebuilt. It's as simple as that. Or if God allows them to rebuild the temple, it's really His wrath. Because in order to allow the Jews to convert, He needs to keep them away from Egypt. Right? Which is the Old Covenant. Yes. Yes. It's the promise of Our Lady. Because the scapular is really a sign of the Carmelite habit. Right? It's connected with the Carmelite order. So it's Our Lady of Mount Carmel who gave the scapular. And whoever wears the scapular essentially is putting on that robe of consecration to her. And as such, the covenant, she says, if you do that, and you're obviously living a life accordingly, then I, in return, will make sure that you're not lost. Well, of course. Yeah, it's not, okay, it's not superstition. It's not like this is a magic thing. I wear it, it's going to take care of No, that's not going to happen. Right? Yeah. Th- have I answered your question? But if you are trying to Oh, absolutely. That's her promise. Right. If you're trying, she'll take care of the rest. Yes, yes. Right, so there are two things about the scapular. First is this promise that you will be able to, be, to, to, to receive confession. The second and stronger promise is that she will get you out on the first Saturday following your death. That promise requires you to say the rosary every day and to uh, do you know, those, the, these other things. There's a bunch of them which I don't remember. So there are these two things attached to the scapular. Yes, yeah. So if you are intent on not li- li- living a life of grace... Well, if you intend on living a life of grace, then you have to correct whatever is keeping you from You have to attempt to correct it. That's how you show that you're living a life of grace. If you do not attempt to correct it, you'll be like the Egyptians walking in the desert and looking like this, walking backward because looking at Egypt. They can't let it go. You understand? So, um, let, okay, so let's, let's, let's take some practical examples. And I've told you about those. Let's take somebody who is a gambler. Gambling is one of the hardest forms of addiction. Very hard to let go of gambling. One of the worst. Let's say you have a gambler who's gambling. Large amounts. But he's torn in his heart because he's doing this. And he would love to be free from this. And he tries various ways to get himself freed from it. So things that cost him. Things that are difficult for him. Things that require sacrifice. He's fasting. He tries to stay away from it. He donated his car. He's trying to make it difficult for him to go to a place of gambling. Now that person, right, is truly trying to do what he can. Versus another gambler who gambles and regrets. Now that second person has just human regret. That's worthless. He, he's not... He doesn't have compunction of heart. Now, that's one example. A second example might be, uh, let's say, a, uh, a woman had an abortion some years ago. And she regrets it. She, does, she truly does. Well, 
in order for her to show that, she will be driven to do something. Maybe teach the young women in her parish, maybe get involved in pro-life, maybe offer her sufferings as for God, to, for the protection of the unborn. Signs, I mean, this is why St. James says, faith without work is dead. Right? If you're not doing anything, and you're sitting pretty, and you're going to Mass every day, and you're saying the rosary, and you're wearing the scapular, but you're living in this kind of state of sin, and you're doing nothing to fix it, it's to no avail. Not going to get you anywhere. Have I answered your question? At the end of the day, you got to put your trust in God and say, I trust you. I know you'll take care of me. That's what we all have to do. We all have areas in our lives that demand attention. We all have mountains to climb that seem impossible to climb. We're all facing our, you know, Red Sea that we need to cross and we don't know how to swim. All of us have these areas, whether they're tiny. So, for instance, let's say... uh, if, you, if somebody asks you a question, what time is it? And you say, it's 8 o'clock. What time is that? 8 o'clock. What time is it? And then you just blow up. Right? That's your Red Sea right there. You're at such a level in your faith that now you're working on these things. You're working on perfection. Okay? And it could be an insurmountable mountain for you to be able to control this temper, this anger. Maybe it's anxiety that you're suffering from. Maybe it's bouts of regrets that come and hit you. For some, it may be dealing with pornography, dealing with lust, dealing with money, being able to really pay your taxes and not cheat. On and on, the list goes. Everybody has areas where you have work to do. It's a grace if you know what they are. It's a wonderful grace. It's a greater grace if you're sorry that you have them and you're doing something about it. But fundamentally, that's what the life of faith... This is how you know you're, you have a real life of faith. Otherwise, you might know about the faith, you know the, the, the teachings of the church, and you just sit pretty and do nothing about it. God, this is what we call the... the uh, okay, not hot, not cold. Lukewarm. That's lukewarmness. And this is what the Lord said. These I spit out of my mouth. So... Back to your question. No, it's not enough. Wearing the scapular, doing all these things. If you're not doing what, if you're not taking courageous actions and moving ahead with your life of faith and trusting in God, yes. Okay. The, con, the use of condom is permitted, provided that you puncture it. It's always been the case. So the, for the medical reasons, for instance, in cases where you need to collect semen for medical exams, right? Uh, there are situations where you just need to do that. The church, so I have actually one couple who were trying to do an analysis to figure out who, for why they can't have a, a child. So it could be that she's sterile, it could be that he was sterile. Like they couldn't, so the, the doctor said, I need to collect semen. So they punctured the, the condom to be able to, to do that. That's an approved way of the, that the church allows the collection of semen. Um, they got pregnant. Okay. I haven't read this piece, but th- that, that's what I know about it. But I don't think the Pope will allow the Pope will allow that a condom be used without the the uh, uh, without it being punctured. I don't think this will happen, but I'll, I'll have to read it. If you can email it to me, yeah, Fatty, yeah. So, so the teaching the teaching of the, the, the church. Don't get okay. Look, don't get the theology from CNN, please. Okay, don't no. 
No, I haven't. But fundamentally, when the Pope, when Pope Pius VI repeated the teaching, the, the, the perennial teaching of the church that has always existed, that contraception is intrinsically evil. Intrinsically means by its very nature is evil. A gun is not intrinsically evil. Contraception is. Because I can use a gun in a positive way. I can't use contraception in a positive way. That's what the church is trying to tell us. Once that is, that's established, and once we understand a marriage is two things. It is a unitive act, a man and a woman together. Hence, the semen must be spilled. And it is a procreative act for the purpose of bringing forth life. That's it. No pope will ever contradict this. It never happened. So, yeah, CNN will do whatever, as usual. The shenanigans. Yep. Very good. Yes. Okay, so let me back up. Thank you. That's important. That's why. Let me back away and tell, give it to you this way. I'm not a specialist in this whole field. So I can't, I want to be very careful here. All I want to say is this. If this particular statement has behind it an unjust law, something that is fundamentally unjust, then the family is not bound by it. Let me put it to you this way. Some person who were perfectly uh, sound of mind and body puts a rule and says, if I faint in the hospital, I want you to take a gun and shoot me. Nobody in the right mind would follow because it's breaking the law. Likewise, if whatever that person said is breaking the law of God, you are not bound by it. All right? So that's what I can say. Now, what needs to be done is a determination as to whether this particular statement makes sense or not. So, for instance, if it meant something like this, a person is terminally ill, kidney is failing, uh, liver is failing, lungs are failing, heart is failing, and they're st maintained alive by a machine. And there is no prospect using current medical technique to make their life any better. Right? And if you remove the machine and you let life proceed, that is perfectly acceptable. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right? Now, if on the other hand, it is saying that there is, there is hope for medical intervention to actually allow this person to recover and continue to live on, but we will not do that, that becomes questionable. Yeah? No, 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 no. That's what I'm saying. No, 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 no. Nothing immoral is acceptable. You can't starve somebody. I'm saying if you remove the machine and within half an hour the person just passes away. That is perfectly acceptable. The person will... Why? Because millions of people outside in the world happens to them every day. They don't have all this technique available to them, right? So that is okay. It is just that when you are... Uh, in the case of starvation, what you're basically saying is that this machine allows this person to continue to live, right? And otherwise they're functioning normally. It's just that they're not, let's say, they're unconscious. But their liver is not failing. The, uh, the, all their organs are functioning normally, and st uh, starvation will probably cause them uh, undue pain. We don't know about that. Then there is a potential that you're committing something really immoral, and you shouldn't do it. Yes, Terry Shaibo. Right. Correct. But again, I am. That's not my specialty. You know, medical ethics is not my call. All I can say is really general statements. Again, you, you probably need to consult an ethicist, someone much better than I am. But 
generally speaking, what I would say is that if she's functioning normally, if she's breathing, eating, drinking, her organs are all functioning normally, right? In which case, die, I mean, uh, having a heart attack or heart, heart stopping and bringing her back will keep her in that state. I am not certain that that's a, the right thing to do, is to let her die. I'm not certain. However, bear in mind that she's not coming back to something that is curable. So I don't know. That's a very good question. I don't know what the answer is. So if you find out, please let me know. That's a very good point. Um, she's saying that's purgatory on earth. How many of you agree it's purgatory on earth? Yes, for the person taking care of them, no doubt. I'm asking for them. Somebody who has dementia. Okay. The answer is no. It's not. Why? What is required? True, but when they say purgatory, they mean you can atone for, for you can essentially make up for the punishment due to sin here on earth, right? Ah, when you offer, therefore, this kind of suffering requires what? Reason. Reason. Without reason, you can't offer. Oh, if you offered before. Yeah, but that's not as. But, but, but we can't assume all of them are doing that. No, most of the people actually don't. Yes, these people, which are the minority, the majority, don't even think about it. But you're right, for the minority who are in a state of grace, who've been offering all the time, then it's implied. Even if they don't make an explicit offering, then it is taken for granted that their suffering is offered. But for the majority of people, who even think about it. It's not. No, you can't. You can offer your sufferings for their souls, if you will. But you can't offer their sufferings for them. So their sufferings is wasted. This is what Bishop Sheen said. That's what I'm saying is that she, she gave the example of somebody who lived a life of grace. Somebody who lives a life of grace, by definition, in a moment of time in their lives, are offering their sufferings. Right? So they offer their sufferings. as a, not, you know, when, when they suffer, they give it to God. So all I said was that even if these people, when they got to this final state of suffering, did not explicitly say, I offer my suffering. Right. Even if they didn't say explicitly, I offer my sufferings, their suffering is offered. Because by their fruit, you shall know them. Their life has been a life of offering. That's why the church says, if you have a baby and you miscarry, right? if you're a good Catholic family, you've been baptizing your children, Baptism will apply even if you don't think about it. Because God knows your intention. So God is merciful this way. Right? But somebody who wasn't living a life of grace. Right? And gets to that point of suffering. The suffering is utterly... Look, suffering doesn't save us. You know that. Suffering does not save us. You can suffer and suffer and suffer and continue to suffer in hell. Alright? What saves us? Right? The suffering of Christ. How can our suffering become purposeful and meaningful? When we unite our suffering with the suffering of Christ. But unite our suffering with suffering of Christ doesn't mean I take my suffering and I mix it in the grand soup of the suffering of Christ. It's not the unity of two liquids. It means that I united myself with Christ. What does it mean to unite yourself with Christ? It means that you believe and obey everything the Catholic Church teaches. If you don't do that, you haven't united yourself with Christ, you haven't united your suffering with Christ, you haven't done a thing. 
It's the covenant. You've got to live by the covenant. If you don't have faith, all your suffering is useless. If you're living in a state of sin, all your suffering is useless. Yes, correct. Now you cannot offer somebody else's suffering. You can't go by the hospital and say, Lord, all the suffering in the hospital I offer to you. not going to work this way. Why? Because you are effectively impinging upon the free will given to every human being. Right? Just like you cannot say to God, all the graces that I merit, I want to give them to somebody else. You can't give the graces you merit to somebody else. You can't do that. That's different. Because you are offering from the treasury of the church. Right? Not your own. But whatever merit is due to you, you cannot offer to someone else. Because you're offering what... So your prayer, right, is now joined to the treasury of the church and is used for someone else. That's what I mean. But it's a prayer for someone. I'm saying the merit due to you, you can't take and give somebody else. I'm giving you an example. So like, for instance, you know that your father, your mother, somebody you love is going to spend eternity in purgatory. And you say, God, I'll spend eternity in purgatory. And and that's that. Not going to work. Can't do that. Okay? Because remember, your first duty is what? What is your first duty? Exactly. Save yourself. Last question. Their sacrifices, not their merits. Do you understand the difference between the two? Okay. Sacrifice is suffering that you're doing on behalf of somebody else. That sacrifice, joined to the suffering of Jesus on the cross, becomes meritorious and can therefore turn into graces to others. In the process of offering your sacrifices, you're meriting graces. These graces, you can't say, and I want those graces that I merit through my suffering to be given to somebody else. Not going to work. Make sense? Do you, do you understand the difference between the two? Look, you work a whole day, you work the whole day, and I told you, when you work the whole day, I'll give you your salary, and whatever you gain, I'm going to give the same to the poor. Right? So your toil allowed somebody to eat. Right? But you still get your salary. Make sense? Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, that's it. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.